Coming up next, the booking reads Preface to Paradise Lost as a preface to us reading The Odyssey. My name is Nathan Alberson. Blah, 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 blah. Brandon's here. Hey. Jake's not here. Boo. Sorry. I know we just did one not too long ago, our style episode without Jake. And here we are again, Brandon. Yeah, Jake's off on an odyssey of his own. He's off on an odyssey of his own. He's trying to get home to the booking. He'll shoot an arrow through Brandon's neck when he gets here. Yeah. As Brandon right. raises the goblet to his lips. <laughs> I have to be uh, that character. I'm just kidding. You wouldn't raise a goblet to your lips. You, no. He'd shoot an arrow through your I'd neck. I'd already you... have that goblet on my lips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> three quarters of the way emptied. Three, three quarters of the way emptied. Not very nice how Odysseus treats those suitors, but uh, we'll get to that. We got a lot of Odyssey to go. But today, Brandon, we thought we'd take a little do- detour since we're sans our pastoral friend our the guy our the buddy man, our buddy our pal our yep. compatriot and all things booking you know there's some things in life more important than making it to a, a booking recording of preface of paradise lost very few things very few things but jake had jake had a scheduling snafu we are actually going to try and record quite a bit of booking in the next 24 hours so we're, we're running a tight ship these days we've all got other things to do but we want to bring you the booking that you need the booking that you deserve the booking that you love to get so that's why me and brandon are here good friend brandon he's wearing his i believe this is the classic black shirt that has been rendered gray through use wrong this is blue. Is, that, is it really? Yeah. Okay. It's time for this shirt to go in the trash, time actually. For the shirt. Is that what you do with your shirts, Brandon? You don't take them to the Goodwill? You don't, well, uh, after I get finished wearing them. Take them off and throw them to uh, a booking fan in, no. the, in the rafters? I don't. All our legions of fans. All of our legions of... Yeah, they're just pressed up against the door out there. Yep, just yep. like the Indiana Jones coming into his study. Yep, one of them came through and started waving a sword. What does Brandon do? He pulls out his gun and shoots <laughs> the guy in the chest. That's right. That's what we do to our fans. <laughs> Indiana Jones. We style. shoot them dead. <laughs> no, we've never shot a single fan, have we? Nope. Stabbed. Yeah. Many times. But no, no, no. We we love our fans very much. And as if to not prove- as many times as they stabbed us in the back. Wait. <laughs> Wait, our fans don't stab us in our back. Our fans are awesome. That's right, only the false friends. Fans. <laughs> the false friends. False friends. <laughs> Sorry, Brandon, I'm logged into the wrong thing here. I need to log into book, uh, the Patreon so we can do our favorite segment, uh, donor shout-outs here. How do you want to shout it out today? I'll, I'll let you call it. You can do it every, any way you like, but you can't do it normal. You have to do it in a oh, fun way. Come on. Oh, uh, I have to call it? you you got to call it. I'll, I'll do half of them. So you You'll can, do half yeah, of them. Yeah, you can call it, and I'll help you with however you call it. Man. What is the form, the poetic form of Paradise Lost. It's a blank verse. Blank verse, so yeah. iambic pentameter. Yeah, so I guess we could try and make iambic pentameter oh, verse that to sounds these people. complicated. <laughs> Let's see what we can do. All right, <laughs> we'll, we'll give it a try. All right, we'll do one for uh, good old Lily of the Valley. Oh, sing, oh, muse of Lily of the Valley. That's 11. It's a very free verse right there. But yeah, I'll... but the, I mean, there were some anapests and stuff thrown in there at the end. It's fine. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Shakespeare would be proud. Yeah. Oh, Andrew and Esther and babe, you're cool. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I am a pentameter for the win. All right, you oh, got the, the inscrutable Jenny Z. Well, we're getting pentameters, but I'm not sure we're getting those IMs. <laughs> yeah. The ins... 
Inscrutable. The Jenny. The Jenny Z's inscrutable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there the Jenny Z's inscrutable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Eat your heart out, Billy S. Oh, Rhonda and Robert, your folks. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> or probably yeehaw. Yeehaw. There we For go. Them. We got John and Jill's little baby Max. Now John and Jill and little baby Max. I don't think that was all I am's, Brandon. It wasn't. <laughs> but it was 10 syllables, so we'll give it to you, I guess. My beloved Mother Beth, who I love. There. My beloved brother, Mother Beth, who I love. There you go. There you go. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Great transport. <laughs> So like a haiku now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I got to do Maya. Over 10 syllables. Oh, Maya, Maya, Maya. Yeah. Maya. Your, yeah, Maya. <laughs> oh, Maya, Maya, Maya. Yeah, Maya. <laughs> oh, Maya, Maya, Maya. Yeah. Oh, Maya, 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 Maya. Thanks, Maya. Uh, Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Maybe that's an iambic pentameter right there. Let's see. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. Nice. We got the pentameter. I don't think we're getting any iams in here, but hey. No, that's all right. We're just, just pentameter. That's, we can't uh, win all of these. I don't these. know. People say iambic pentameter is the natural way that the Eng- people speak in English, but I don't know. About no, that. I don't. Who knows? Who knows? I feel like I speak in many poetic forms all the time. Yeah. Certainly listeners of the booketing know I speak in almost nothing but poetic forms. Uh, let's see. Did we do Nathan, not me? Nathan. Is that, my, is that you? I think it's you. Okay. Oh, Nathan, not me. Oh, no, he's not. So sad. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> right, there we go. Benny Tiberius and Dana Tiberius. Benny, Benny Tiberius and Tiberius, Benny and Dan. Nah. Nah. Hey. Hey. <laughs> hey. Tiberius, Benny and Dana. Hey. hey. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. The lovebirds that are Kate and her Eric. Her. Does that actually work? Yeah. Her Eric. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> the lovebirds that are Kate and her Eric. <laughs> Nothing Eric. awkward about that at Her all. Eric. <laughs> Her Eric. Her Eric. Schnell, schnell. Oh, here. This one might fit the, some IMs nicely. Professor X. Professor X. Professor X is oh so kind and smart. Professor X is oh so kind and smart. Professor X is oh, co- oh so kind and smart. You can say oh so fine and smart. Oh so fine. Well, I don't know. He's just... Uh, Brandon, hey. we are we are going into the Odyssey month. And so we, we, we're, we're going to cover kind of some scraps today. Um, and actually, I just remembered a scrap that I wanted to cover that has nothing to do with anything. But we received a letter from a British friend. Who loves our British accent? Hi there. Hey, How you British doing, Governor? Great, Governor. Well, then we'll just do the whole episode this way, why don't we? <laughs> why don't we? Don't we? That would be the Queen's knickers then. You, they just love us in London, They you take say. their lorry up on the lift and... Let's just get in our TARDIS and go over there. <laughs> <laughs> say, howdy do. <laughs> Wait. I don't know what accent you're doing. Brandon thinks British people talk like... I don't know what. Okay, so this guy, this... Fr- Friend of ours, very artic, one of the most articulate fans that we've spoken to over the email. Good man, 
hard to find famously yeah. but this this man seems like a good man and he wrote to us and he had some additional insight on one of your favorite authors Mr. Ishiguru's Remains yeah. of the Day and what he said I don't think he'd mind us saying his name is Brad what Brad said hey, Brad. is that uh, I believe it's Pastor Brad Pastor Brad in Britain hello Brad Pastor Brad in Britain Pastor Brad in Britain what Brad says is that Brandon I'll bounce this off you I'll see what you think about it go ahead he thinks that when Ishiguro says we're all British butlers, mm-hmm. that there is something intrinsically British about Stevens and about the whole emotionally repressed milieu of the peace. That was, an, that was a silly way to say that, but you know what I'm saying? It's about an emotionally repressed guy. What Brad says is that we're not just talking about a case of an autistic gentleman or a, a, a singular individual who's repressed. We're talking about a whole culture in Britain that is, in fact, emotionally buttoned down and deals with some of the problems that Stevens deals with because of it. Obviously, there are greater and lesser extremities of that, but he's saying it's somewhat of a cultural thing, and he wondered if perhaps Ishiguro wasn't in some some way, these, these are my words, not Brad's, but indicting the whole culture that when Ishiguro in an interview says, we're all British butlers, what he's actually saying is that everyone in Britain, the novel is actually saying something specific about Britain. What say you to that, Mr. Chastain? First thing I would say is I don't know any British people. No. I assume, Brad, that you are right. I'll just, I'll address Brad directly. Hi, Brad. Nice to talk to you. Mm-hmm. In a way, in a roundabout way, talking to you. This is a very slow <laughs> your email. Yeah, yeah. Your email. Yeah. We're right. ta- but we're talking to your email. Right, right. This right. is really a strange form of conversation. But you're listening and it's a conversation. So Yeah, but you're listening. So yeah. hey Brad, you live in Britain, you know a lot of British people, so we don't know the British culture, and we know that cultures can be very different. We definitely, we would definitely that, give you that one can generalize about cultures, that some yeah. cultures are more friendly, some are more buttoned down, some are more angry, some are more this. Yeah, it's, there's nothing wrong with stereotypes. It's out of uh, fashion these days, but our, the Apostle Paul says, all Cretans are liars, mm-hmm. for example, famous example of the Bible stereotyping just uh, in a rather politically incorrect way. But no, it's, it's not popular, it's not politically correct. Definitely, though, we'll give you the point, a culture can be a certain way, and I trust that your analysis of the British people is accurate. Now, having said that, I think Brandon has a further thought on the matter. Yeah. So having said that, two points about Ishiguro and Remains of the Day. Having read Remains of the Day and actually having read a whole lot of other stuff by Ishiguro now, I don't think that Ishiguro meant for Stevens to be a representative figure of the British people. For multiple reasons. One, if you look at the other characters in the novel— he is a bit of a unique, eccentric. Right. You don't see anybody else handle life the way that Stevens handles life. Mm-hmm. Um, people look at Stevens as unusual. This person who's searching for dignity and really wants this dignity, and he finds it in other butlers, but I don't think that that's necessarily meant to be representative of the whole of all of Britain. So you have the, for example, where he goes to the countryside, mm-hmm. and he goes to that place where he's mistaken for like an ambassador. Right. And mover and shaker in, in the world, and he just lets that fly. Those people are very jovial, very conversational and talkative, and not as seemingly repressed as Stevens is. There's a lot of repression in the novel. So I, I, I take your point that repression, especially of memory and things like that, is kind of what Ishiguro is dealing with, but it's what he deals with in all his novels. That leads into the other point, what do I think that he's doing? If, if Stevens is representative of anything, what is he representative of? It's kind of the modern condition, how we all, like we said, allow ourselves to lie. Mm-hmm about ourselves, to ourselves, so that we end up believing the stories that we create to 
make amends for the past, to cover up for what failures we've had. That's a theme across Ishiguro's novels. And Ishiguro famously, we talked about this in that episode, he famously will have a theme or an idea he wants to deal with, and then the setting kind of comes later. So in other words, Ishiguro, when he conceived of the novel, was presumably not thinking of it as quintessentially British or as indicative of anything British. He just wanted to tell the story of this gentleman and then decided on a setting that fit it. One of his other books, The Artist of the Floating World, is given to people in Britain who are traveling to Japan because... People say, well, you really need to read this book in order to understand Japanese culture. And from one of the things he's, Brad said, you said that people gave you this book as saying this is representative of British culture. Mm-hmm. This is interesting because I think that what Ishiguro has, is able to do is he's able to create these worlds in a way that Ernest Klein can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> to where it's very believable and it seems real to us, which is what a great artist is able to do. They create these worlds and then they give us these stories and these characters that we're either meant to empathize with or empathize against, you know. Can you empathize against something? Can you empathize against? That's a good email for Tell us whether or not we can empathize against yes. something. Can you empathize against something? <laughs> I empathize against Hitler. That's yeah. what I empathize against. But anyways, the fact that his worlds are so believable speaks a lot to Ishiguro's creativity and his artistry. He is a Brit. That's not a slur, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it's like... Is that a slur, Brad? I don't think it's like Chinaman or anything okay. like that. He is British. Right. And so he understands that culture very well. And he's, like I said, he's in the context episode. He kind of is caught between the Japanese world and the British world. And he finds it really humorous when people give that particular novel, Artist of the Floating World, to people who are traveling to Japan. Because mm-hmm. he's like, I, you know, this isn't really representative of Japan. This is representative of the story I'm telling. If it happens to capture Japanese culture, great. But it's more trying to just capture the culture of this novel. Now, it may well be that he accidentally, or as a byproduct, captured British culture in such a way that you can give the novel, that, you know, the person that gave Brad the novel and said, read this so you understand British culture wasn't being an idiot. Yeah. It's just, it it wasn't his intention. Yeah. So I don't think that was Ishiguro's intention. Now, do I think that it's helpful to read a novel and then seek people that you're recognizing those characters and people that you have in your own life? No, I think that's exactly one of the values and benefits of a novel is it helps you expand your understanding of other people. Yeah. And so when you have a good teacher like Ishiguro who has said, this is a certain type of person, then you can expand that to everyone. And so then I I suppose the last point would be you actually see Stevenses everywhere. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of Stevenses in the homeschooling world in the South. Oh, yeah, sure. A lot of fathers who are just dead set on dignity, the Mm -hmm. dignity of their family. And then all the sort of crimes and misdemeanors. (laughs) (laughs) Crimes and, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The crimes and misdemeanors they're willing to cover over with a thin layer of dust Mm -hmm. because... They really, really want that dignity. Yeah, Sir Thomas in Mansfield Park was like that. He was a little bit of a Stevens, or repenting. Though then, to Brad's point, he was British. Yes, that's you make a fair point. Yeah. (laughs) So my point is that I think that the Stevens is representative of a bigger problem Mm -hmm. and a a bigger point about human nature than just. Yeah, and Brad mentioned us mentioning the interview where Ishiguro says we're all British butlers, and and in that particular interview, if I remember correctly, Ishiguro was certainly saying we universally are all. British butlers. We are all, and and Ishiguro is just. I think he's one of those interesting guys who's he's a cosmopolitan writer in some sense. He's a universalist. He is not writing in order to capture any particular culture. Although, if Brandon, as Brandon says, if that's if that happens as a byproduct, I don't think he minds. But he's a man of the world. He's always a man that you know because of his heritage being quasi Japanese, quasi British. He's he's able to kind of stand outside of cultures a little bit. He sees himself as outside of culture a little bit. 
set in a strange way that not a lot of people can probably relate to, but that's who that's who Ishiguro happens to be. Yep. So, anything else to say about Brad's feeble-minded attempt to prove that our podcasts on Remains of the Day were not utterly superior and the last word and that he knows more about British culture than we do. Oh, yeah. Even though we've read like three Jane Austen novels on this podcast. Some Dickens. Yeah. Some Shakespeare. I mean, we've read a lot of British literature. Nice try. And I've seen pictures of London. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Big Ben. It's got the Big Ben. It's got that bridge thing right next to Big Ben. Uh, We've got great British accents. Yep. Yep. Nice try, Brad. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Brad's great. I, I really like Brad. We've had some private con- correspondence. He's, he's, I th- yeah, he's I think like it's a, a fair question guy. because I think what was fascinating about Brad's question is I think that it pinpoints what Ishiguro is perfect at. Yes. So like when The Buried Giant, which I really enjoyed, some people don't enjoy as much. I, I mean, I liked all his books. And The Unconsoled was great, but they're both weird. But still, the world that he creates and evokes is completely feels real. Mm-hmm. So well, the other thing he said, or correct me if I'm wrong, but you shouldn't over research. Yeah. Yeah. He said that you have to find this balance between where you've done just the right amount of research and then not so much that it becomes history. Right. So because if you do too much research, then it just becomes historical fiction. Right. Like so G- it's, G.A. Henty. Right. And who wants to read G.A. Henty? Basically? Or uh, this is, I don't know if I should say this on mic. Sir Walter Scott. Oh, you can say it online. Uh, Mike, yeah. But that's the fascinating thing about Ishiguro. It's a tribute to his imaginative powers and his empathy, his powers of empathy that without doing a ton of research, he can project himself into these people and these characters in such a way that his books do, after the fact, become accepted as indicative or as representative of certain cultures because that's yeah. just how good he is. But that's never his intention. So, yep. Yeah, it's like you read Tolstoy and you think that that must be representative of Russian culture. Just the way that these guys are able to create these worlds. That is my, I mean, that's one of my biggest criticisms of Ready Player One. For the record, I have been willing to step back from opinions in the past when they were wrong, but I think that the further we get away from Ready Player One, the stronger my stance against that book grows. So (laughs) anyone who was upset by my opinion on that book just... Hold on to your hats. Yep, yep. Just wait for Ready Player Two. Because just like uh, we have never let A.A. Milne go, I'm going to hold on to that horse's tail until it's (laughs) just a rotted corpse. (laughs) It's the master of metaphor over there, folks. (laughs) He's going to, let's just just repeat, (laughs) he's going to hold on to that horse's tail until it's a rotted corpse. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, Brandon. It's uh, you know, it's not it's not always easy to come up with a metaphor, and yet I mock your attempt, and I apologize. But yeah, hey, uh, I I stand by that metaphor. Yeah, no, you got to hold on to a horse's tail until it rots. Yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that uh, answers Brad's question. What we're gonna do with the rest of our time? Oh, I, I should tell people, Brandon. What we've got a big, exciting hundredth episode spectacular. Planned. Do we? Yeah. But suffice to say, it's not something that any of us would consider to be a literary classic, but it's probably one of the most number one requested things that we've been asked to do. So we're just killing it with one fell swoop. Fell one fell, maybe two fell swoops, we'll see. But I don't know. People could probably guess. And I think there's been some social media to the effect that of what it is. So you could probably figure it out very easily. But I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's more fun that way. But suffice to say, the big hundo episode is uh, going to be fun. Now, to finish this episode out, this episode is a little bit of random scraps minus Jake. But we want, me and Brandon wanted to talk a little bit about our old nemesis, Clive Staples Lewis. Actually wrote a book 
that we really like. I believe I may be correct in saying, I, I know I'm correct in saying it's my favorite C.S. Lewis thing, probably maybe that he ever wrote with the exception perhaps of whatever that thing's called. What's that thing called? Men Without Chests. Yes, that one. What on earth is that called, Brandon? Men Without Chests. No, it's not. <laughs> it's called, it's a- called An Apology to... No. An a- apology to end all apologies. The a grief observed. The gelded... The gelded horse. The horse. <laughs> who's rotted in your hands. <laughs> Wait, what? The horse and his boy have rotted. Uh, what is yeah, that? That'd be an awful way for that to have ended. <laughs> he just Brandon. held on to his horse until it rotted. Charn. What is that thing called? Abolition of man. The abolition of man. Yes, and we are great getting, tonight. Getting old, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have Jake here. He would have been up out there, and it was a snap of his fingers. That's what Jake does. He's always got the information. Should have He's... gone for the head. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon just made an Avengers joke, and I laughed. That's what that was, right? Yeah, yeah. I snapped. Yeah, he snapped, <laughs> and then fifty uh, percent of Earth's population just turned to spoilers. Dust. Yeah, sorry. Ah, who cares? And Brandon's wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. What can I, what can I say? Yeah, I am Thanos. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, if you didn't know, Brandon is a big purple space monster. Yep. <laughs> In case anyone was unclear on that That's point. how I know so much about literature. Yep. <laughs> I stand outside of time. Yep. <laughs> it tracks. Yeah. <laughs> Just think about it, folks. It makes sense. All right, so my favorite C.S. Lewis's books... C.S. Lewis's books. That's how you say that. My favorite C.S. Lewis books. Number one, The Abolition of Man. Yes. Number two, Preface to Paradise Lost, I think. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So we thought we'd talk about it because next week we're going to start talking about The Odyssey. Preface to Paradise Lost is actually a great book to read anytime you're going to think about reading an epic because why, Brandon? Why? Because it's so extraordinary, Nathan. Because it's so extraordinary. So the thing about C.S. Lewis's Preface to Paradise Lost is it's actually a great preface to epic poetry in general. He has spent several of the first uh, chapters talking about epic poetry. So I thought there'd be no better way to pay a little tribute to a man that we've uh, beat up quite a bit on the booketing, but who we like, get some good information just on epic poetry and on how it works. So this episode will be a little bit of a grab bag. We're just going to talk through some of the things that Lewis says about poetry and epic poetry and the form and what it is and what it means to do. And he has all kinds of good insights. So we're just going to kind of talk our way through some of those today as preparation for digging into the Odyssey next week. So my stance on C.S. Lewis, let's just start. Yeah, yeah. Not a great theologian. Nope. Very bad theologian in many ways. Yep. Said some horrifying things. Certainly Surprised did. by joy as we rediscovered mm-hmm. that we wish we could forget. Yep. Said but, that uh, pederasty had a touch of the divine, lest yeah. we forget. Was... I'm not sure I can forgive Lewis for ever having said that. But no. that aside, he was an amazing literary critic. Mm-hmm. And what he was great at, he was just fantastic at synthesizing all these ideas that he had about books he had read. Mm-hmm. And then making definitions and terms and putting together categories and putting things into categories and um, identifying themes and all these things that you look for in a great literary critic who's not just either historically driven or politically driven, but just actually concerned about the craft of literary history. He has some assumptions that you have to deal with first, such as he assumes there is such a thing as a great book. Yes. He assumes there is there are such things as great writers, and he assumes that Western literature in particular is worth reading. This is all important because a lot of modern critics wouldn't agree with any of these things. No, they wouldn't, but I agree with them. <clears throat> yeah. And so, in fact, there's a point in this book where he says... In order to take no unfair advantage, I should warn the reader that I myself am a Christian, and that some of the things which the atheist reader must try to feel as if he believed, I actually in cold prose do believe. This is the part of the preface to Paradise Lost. It's right in the middle where he's talking about 
how do we approach things that are so different from our own time? And he says, you have to understand that cultures really do affect the way we look at the world. Right. And to understand something, you need to inhabit. That's, I don't know if he uses the word inhabit, but you need to inhabit that time. Right. And so to understand the Odyssey, you need to understand Hellenist, and uh, not Hellenistic, that was after the right. Odyssey, as we'll find out in context. <laughs> Next week. Hold on to your um, dead horses. Yep. <laughs> until they rot. Yeah, let's beat that one. Yep. <laughs> let's beat the corpse. Yep. It's already rotted. Might yeah. as well. Yeah, until it becomes dust, like in the last crusade. A horse turns to dust in the last crusade? No, but that guy does. After oh, he drinks yeah. It. yeah. Poor Donovan. He chose poorly, in my opinion. He did. That horse chose poorly by coming, by mm-hmm. going against me. Yeah. <laughs> Oh boy, this is this one. Jake keeps us on track, <laughs> oh, doesn't Jake. he? I guess <laughs> this is what happens when Jake's not here. We just start saying nonsense. Sure Jake has already turned this episode off. <laughs> Jake, we are going to say our favorite things about you at the end of this episode. So you better start keep listening. Yeah, or you could use the fifteen forward thing. But why would you do that? Why would you do that? We might sprinkle them throughout yeah, here. We'll sprinkle them through. Great beard. Yeah, very tall. People just have to uh, figure out when we're sprinkling them in. <laughs> yeah, does <laughs> he have blue eyes? Yeah, probably. I haven't looked at it. But this is one of, so C.S. Lewis actually had some tenets that he would, I don't know if he would come to espouse them, but he would espouse them throughout his career. Yeah. Literary tenets, especially. And one of these is this idea that you need to inhabit the idea, the mindset, the cultural context of a particular author. So in one of his great works, um, The right. Discarded Image, yeah, yeah. the opening chapter to that, he ba- he bakes, he says the same thing, that you need to go along with the author on their journey. Mm-hmm. You need to, if you're reading the Aeneid, get become a Roman. Mm-hmm. And so here he says, if you're going to read Homer for that moment in your life, become a classical Greek. Know what it meant to be Homer at that period and understand, and then you'll be able to read that. Yeah, I don't epic. think we can say it better than C.S. Lewis, so I'm just going to read go actually ahead, the, read the first paragraph from the first chapter of this thing. He says, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral. Eh, you got to love the alliteration, C.S. Lewis, yep. a good stylist. That's the other thing to say that is indisputable about C.S. Lewis, one of the 20th century's great stylists. But anyway, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it was meant to be used. After that has been discovered, the temperance reformer may decide that the corkscrew was made for a bad purpose, and the communist may think the same about the cathedral. But such questions come later. The first thing is to understand the object before you. As long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tins or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. Great. Yeah. Two things about this. One, anyone who wants to learn how to write and think, you can't... I don't think you can do much better than C.S. Lewis Mm -hmm. in these great essays that he writes like this. Because what he's doing here without being heavy-handed about it is he's defining his terms, Mm -hmm. right? And he's telling us why we define our terms in the first place. Right. Why do you define your terms? Well, because it helps you think clearly. Mm -hmm. A lot of writers don't ever do this sort of work. But if you look closely at a good essay, E.B. White, all these guys, they define their terms. They just do it with sort of grace and elegance. Yeah. Not sort of. They do it with grace and elegance. Great grace and elegance, yeah. So that I was jumping right into the middle, but right there, he's defining his terms for us. He's giving Mm -hmm. us this way of understanding what he's arguing. And so as he... he, Yeah, I'm sorry. I was backing us up a little bit. Yes. So that backed us all the way up to the beginning of this, which is good. No, it's helpful because it's what he does throughout this whole thing. And it's what he's really good at is giving you these solid stepping stones to follow him. Mm -hmm. So he'll... what's What's a good way of thinking about it? And he'll... It's kind of like he's building the bridge while you're walking. Yeah. And he'll go a little way in front of you and he'll lay down a few boards. Right. And he'll tell you what these boards are for. 
And then he'll say, okay, come on, come on. And he'll take you right up to the point where then he needs to lay down a few more. And so finally you'll get to the end, and you're, but he's, all the, he's going with you, and he's taking you with him. And you and never so, don't know where you are. You're, you're following him as he lays the track, and it's linear. But his style is beautiful, just as a side point, I guess. His style is so beautiful that it's all hidden, and you don't, it doesn't feel plotting or obvious or boring like a high school term paper with three points or anything like that. It's all very elegant the way he does it, but you're never lost. You always know exactly where you're at, and you know what came before and what's coming next, and he builds it link by link and builds yep. it out, as you were saying. Yeah, and so, but he does it all without being cheap. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem with a lot of... Like I've talked about the five paragraph essay before and how much I hate that thing. Yeah. The problem with it is it makes you think that writing is just like building a Lego set. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more to the craft than that. Right. So if you watch what Lewis does, he'll give you these definitions, but he does it. It's like sleight of hand. You don't really know that it, that's what he's doing. I guess it's a bit like what he says later, that the whole point of this style of poetry mm-hmm. is for you to never even realize you're reading poetry. And so that's one of my favorite points he ends up making about the epic is the whole point of it is to draw you in so that it can evoke these feelings and things that this poet is trying to evoke in in you without you ever realizing it's happening. But as soon as you try and stop and say, okay, this is why it's happening, it just disappears. Mm -hmm. That's kind of is what happens with the Lewis essay too. As soon as you try and analyze what's going on, you can see what's happening, but also the magic. The magic. The magic. The magic. (laughs) The magic disappears. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is with good writing. I mean, the E.B. White was the same way. Tolstoy's the same way. Mm -hmm. Austin's the same way. So you can stop and you can say, okay, this is what they're doing, but then good luck you trying to take the same technique and do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Because there has to be that life behind it. We, We did kind of address that with the style episode. Yeah. But- Addressing it here is, I think, helpful. Uh, I don't think we can ever address it enough. Because that's the difference between someone who's passable as a writer versus someone who's, you know, brilliant, Mm -hmm. is they've got that je ne sais quoi, Mm -hmm. where they can take the technique and make it into art. Yeah. But the, the technique is all there. It's built on yeah. a structure that is almost in its way as as plottingly straightforward as a high school essay, as Brandon's hated five point essay, but or five paragraph essay. But it's beautifully, elegantly disguised. Sleight of hand yeah. is the right word for it because you don't, you don't even realize what's happening. Yeah. And so his definitions here. So he wants to look at what an epic is and he introduces you to a problem. Mm-hmm. And so... Should we just handle this like we're giving people tips on how to write a good essay? Sure. Yeah. Why, why not? not? So he, yeah. So he sets it up. His his gripper, mm-hmm. his opening gripping point is yeah. that what you just pointed us to? This, you know, how to? Why do we do definitions in the first place? Why do we need to understand what things are? Right. And so he's saying we need to be very careful about this. And he's saying, and then he poses a problem to us in the fact that in the modern age. People don't understand poetry of the type that Milton was wanting to write because people all thought poetry was the type of that he introduces in the second chapter where he introduces his opponent, his foil, mm-hmm. which is Mr. T.S. Eliot. Yes, yes, yes. Mr. T.S. Eliot wants to have poetry that is considered great poetry by poets. Mm-hmm. And then he has this long digression where he's like, well, if poetry can only be considered great by poets, how does anyone ever know, A, that they're a poet? Right. And B, how does anyone outside of a of a poet ever know that something's good mm-hmm. because how do they ever know who's a good poet to tell them what good poetry is? Yeah. It's, it's, it's slapping the snot out of postmodernism yeah, before so he was even termed 
postmodernism. And so Lewis is really good at this. So if you want to see Lewis be kind of Chestertonian in mm-hmm. his thinking, go to Is Criticism Possible, Chapter 2. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's fun. It's a little bit long, and it, you're, you'll are you get the point before he's ever done with it. But he right. has fun with it. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, well, you know, hey, and, and he keeps going on yeah, it. Yeah. So, and then how would I ever know who a poet is? And how would they even know who yeah. a poet is? And whoever, yeah. And so it's, <laughs> it's a reductio ad absurdum mm-hmm. argument. You're just reducing everything back to absurdity. And so, so here's, so here's the, then the stakes. How can we know what great poetry is? And in the modern age, especially when we all think that poetry is about the expression of an individual great poet. Right. And that we're supposed to admire that poem for the fact that it's an artifact of poetry. Mm-hmm. That's what Eliot thinks. Right. So T.S. Eliot thinks that great poets write great poetry. And people are supposed to kind of admire this thing as an expression of the poet. And that's probably what a lot of our readers and most moderns just kind of assume without even thinking about it. A poem is a thing by, a, you know, a Whitman or a Yeats or something like that. Yeah. And it's it's this artifact that you admire for its poetry. And you look and it's yeah. got a little central image and you experience it as a poem. Yeah. But what we've lost, according to C.S. Lewis, is the ability to love the longer poem, this narrative style of poem, which mm-hmm. is the epic. And so he says that a lot of people get lost in Milton and in Homer and Beowulf because they don't understand what the poet's trying to do in the first place. Because we all think that a poem needs to be like the wasteland, where it calls attention to itself as a poem. Mm -hmm. So that's the best way of explaining the crisis here at the beginning, is we live in an age at the time uh, C.S. Lewis was writing, Mm -hmm. where we look at poetry as this sort of hard crystal that you admire. Whether or not you understand it, who cares? If the poet understands it, that's what's important. That's been a good problem because if you read Paradise Lost or the Odyssey or the Aeneid or anything like that, you're not actually going to find that it's working that way, yeah. And but you'll keep expecting it to. So you'll be like, well, where's this hard crystal, crystalline, yeah. great image or metaphor, central? Or, yeah. Why isn't this doing what a poem does? Yeah, I would say that probably one of the biggest, one of the best examples of this would be, and I like him, but Wallace Stevens, mm-hmm. a lot of his poetry calls attention to itself yeah. as poetry. It's the emperor of ice cream. Yeah. I mean, you don't know, not, I don't, st- I still don't know if I really understand the emperor of ice cream, No, <laughs> but it's a, f- I mean, it's just a great poem. I think it's about a dead body, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It'd be fun to talk about yeah. it one day. Well, yeah, yeah. I'd love to take another crack at poetry. Should we do a little uh, poetry analysis behind the paywall? Yeah, that's a good idea. Would that be fun? I think that would be fun. Anyways, so it's these poems like William Carlos Williams, T.S. Eliot, these guys that write these, like thinking of them as a hard crystal or like a little diamond is a mm-hmm. good way of thinking of it. As long as the poets realize, think of it are Picasso, these arts that are hard for you to understand as an outsider. Mm-hmm. And so what it ends up creating is this feeling of there being an inside right. and there being an outside. All right. That can't, that's not the way it is with epic, according to C.S. Lewis. To C.S. Lewis, the epic is something that, first of all, considers its audience right. because it's oral. Mm-hmm. It's spoken, and he makes this one point where it doesn't do much good to just talk to yourself, right? right? That just makes you look crazy. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be talking to someone. Right. And so that's kind of where he starts then is the fact that, well, first, I mean, he, he's he's really good, like I said, at sort of these divisions and things and putting things into categories. One of the first important divisions he does make is between the poet and the audience and how modern poetry 
idolizes the poet, but the epic is very different because it considers the audience right. and how are the how are you going to evoke feeling in the audience? And so that's where you end up getting to this point where he says, you know, you you even lose the poem when you read an epic. Right. You forget for a moment that it's even a poem because you're just swept in to what the poem is doing. Yeah, what one way people might think of it is is the poet doing all the work or is the reader or listener doing all the work? With a lot of modern poetry, it's real complex and dense and you as the reader or the listener have to do all the work of deciphering it almost like a math problem with Homer the poet is actually doing all the work. He's sweeping you in. He's drawing you in. It's a story. Yeah. You you may well forget the poet altogether because you're just on a grand adventure with Odysseus as he's fighting monsters and doing all that cool stuff, sailing over the wine dark sea. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis is not saying that he doesn't like what T.S. Eliot's doing. No. Either. He was an admirer of T.S. Eliot. His point is that you need to be able to approach these different arts mm-hmm. and these different forms in the way that they want you to approach them. And that moderns have lost the ability to do that. And I would say, so that is where we start. That's mm-hmm. the that's the context behind where we get into epic. Mm-hmm. I would say that if that's true of C.S. Lewis's day, it's even more true of our day. Oh, doubly, yeah, triply. Where there's even a harder division than mm-hmm. what was there with C.S. Lewis's age. Um, the classical movement's trying to kind of redeem it. But what you have is you have the New Yorker with its hard poems to understand, yeah. which are really for those who are initiated, mm-hmm. versus people who like to go, you know, watch the Avengers movies. Right. And that's 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 the that's what you get. Yeah. Never the Twix Twain show meet. Right. Like we've lost the intellectual middle class in some sense. It's yeah. like you've got the intelligentsia who understand deep mysteries, and then you've got people that just like to eat their popcorn and watch their Avengers, but yeah. there ain't nothing in between, which is not historically how it's been. Yeah, it's not historically how it's been. And I, I, I particularly like the poets that have tried to bring it back. So guys like Richard Wilbur, the teacher I had, B.H. Fairchild, they were champions of formal poetry and also narrative style poetry, which was trying to bring poetry back to the roots that it once had right. instead of this weird abstract stuff that it's become. Um, that's for another episode. Though. Sure. But um, so with that aside, he gets in then into what Epic is. Right. And he talks about... People should pay attention to this because uh, that's one of the main reasons we're doing it is because we're, we're going into one of the great primary epics. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Odyssey in the next few weeks. So uh, yes, tell us about Epic Perseus Lewis. So yeah, so the way that he does it is he, he, he starts talking about Epic because, well, I guess the, we should say the whole point of this is to get to an understanding of what Milton is doing with Paradise Lost. Right. But he spends a lot... One of the reasons we're doing this, you might be wondering, why are you talking about this when you're not actually doing Paradise Paradise Lost, because I think this is just one of the best books to read about epic poetry in general. Yeah, so this really helps you understand what epic poetry does. Yes, I, when we did Beowulf for the bookening a couple of years ago, I actually read this in preparation for that, just to refresh myself. He says a lot of good things about Beowulf and about basically all the all the epics in this. So yeah, and so he starts then talking about pri- so these two. Di- he makes a division with epic. You have primary epic and you have secondary epic. He says it has nothing to do with um, one being better than the other. It just has to do with the fact that primary primary epic came first and secondary epic grew out of primary mm-hmm. epic. So primary epic then, what is its primary um, defining quality? The fact that it's oral and tradition, that it was passed down in courts. You can see this in the form. They Both Homer and Beowulf talk about poetical performances, but all poetry is oral, delivered by the voice, not read, and so far as we are told, not written either. And all poetry is musical. So you have some sort of instrument that accompanies it, but... 
more than that, the epic is this type of poetry in that era, which would have been performed at a court, right? Right, or at least at a festival. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about this. I mean, so perhaps he makes a concession that Homer's epic could have been performed not at court, but at a festival, like I just said. But there would have been some sort of seriousness to it, mm-hmm. right? some sort of occasion to give it importance. And added to that occasion, you would have had two things. One, you would have had the character of the poet speaking. And it could have been a nobleman. At times, especially with the Beowulf poet, it could have been a king. I mean, imagine, I don't think you can imagine Donald Trump, but imagine some dignified leader of a nation sitting down in in the middle of his other nobleman, right? I guess you could imagine Donald Trump if you want to, Mm -hmm. him going in, sitting down at a feast in the middle of the Senate and literally kind of singing an epic poem about George Washington. Right. That would kind of give you an idea of what's happening with these epic poems. Sounds sweet. Yeah, sounds awesome. I'm all for it. Yeah. Or in the case of Greeks, a bard, a singer, a poet, who the people thought were inspired by the gods. Mm -hmm. They had some special message that was given to them by the gods that then they were expressing in words. So you have the occasion, you have the person, and then you also have the style. The style itself would have been hexameter, 12 feet. Mm-hmm. It would have been very musical and poetic in its, in, just in the way the language sounded, in the right. feet and the meter that were used. But then also the expressions that were used would have been a heightened form of poetry. And C.S. Lewis, I don't know where he says it, but he says that today, the modern, and I think this is especially the case with us today, we all think that simple is better. But to the Greeks and to the Beowulf poets, poet, and to Virgil and to Milton, when you write poetry, you have poetic language. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going to be heightened. It's going to sound like poetry. Yeah, it's the reason that uh, someone like Abraham Lincoln would write four score and seven years instead of just saying yeah. 87 years ago. And it's something we've lost today with our sense of irony. We make fun of that sort of thing, right? The only place we have room for it is in our bad pop lyrics. And then they're bad and cheesy. But for someone to be like heightened and poetic, and I confess in myself, I, I don't have much room for it. Yeah, no, I, I make fun of it. Yeah, it makes me a little sad, though. When I think about Star Wars movies, like, yeah. they, they have every excuse to indulge in that sort of oratory in a Star Wars yeah. movie. I don't know why they don't. They, they do, but it's in a very juvenile yeah. kind of way, unfortunately. A quick aside, I think that a poet who deals with the language of the time, and if you're a poet worth your salt, you're going to try and deal with poetry as it is today. Mm-hmm. You're not going to try and take things back sure. to the old Homeric style. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of, I mean, I think there is a lot of bad stuff that's coming out of like these Tolkien admirers. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all, it just sounds campy and cheesy. No, you have to be a genius on the yeah. level of Cormac McCarthy, who is yeah. just a genius in order to pull off that sort of old fashioned. Yeah, it sounds lazy is yeah. what it ends up sounding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really hard work to make, to turn, and that's the brilliance of Shakespeare is he, tur- we don't realize how Elizabethan he is. We mm. always think of Shakespeare as like being something outside of the Elizabethan language. Right. He's very Elizabethan. He was able to take Elizabethan language and make it poetry. Mm -hmm. And so that's what a great poet does. Homer took the Greek language and made it poetry. Mm -hmm. Virgil took Roman and made it poetry. And so that's what the poet does. They deal with the language they have. If one of us were to write poetry, we would take the American vernacular today, find what's poetic about it. Yes. That's what the poet does. Right. So anyways, Lewis really doesn't admit that. And I think it's his own just uh, sympathy towards what we'll talk about here in a minute, towards the um, other, towards the myth, mystical yes, yes, yes. weirdness that he yeah. gets into. Which is where C.S. Lewis always gets weird. So then the, the last few minutes we have with this episode, 
What do people need to understand about Epic before moving in? And I will recap some of this in context. Sure, next week with uh, the IRC. Um, you need to understand what Lewis is saying here about what really defines primary Epic is this oral tradition, the poet that's speaking it, the occasion that's calling for it, mm. and then what kind of occasion calls for it. And this is where he gets into this word solempne, S-O-L-E-M-P-N-A. I think it might be French. I don't remember. Right. But it's this idea of solemnity, but, solem- but in particular ritual. And this is where we kind of get into the weird mysticism that Lewis was a big fan of, because he thinks that ritual calls you to lose yourself in the ritual, and that there's a sort of beautiful dignity to the old ritual and the old traditions and the way that they would call you to wear your costume and the bells and the smells, Mm -hmm. and you would lose yourself in it because it was something grander and bigger than you. And so he says that you find ritual, actually, the solemnity more in Easter than you do in Good Friday, because there's a sense of festivity celebration, but also reserve. Right. Not not even reserve. Importance. Yeah. Weight. Portent. Portent. That's right. And so he says a coronation would, might be the best thing for us to think of. If you've ever seen the movie, the Crown, or the TV show, The Crown, that sort of weight that goes into that. I have issues with that because I think that that often just leads to hypocrisy. And I think Lewis was a hypocrite. I yeah. think that he dealt with hypocrisy. But the important thing is, is out of that solemnity, out of the occasion, the seriousness of it, you get the sort of weighty character of the epic. And so the epic, he doesn't necessarily deal with what it's going to talk about. He says you don't really get this idea of the weight of like the purpose of the epic, like the fact that we, when we think of epic, we think of like the Lord of the Rings. Sure. We think of some mission that's being carried out by important men. It's this adventure. And he says that really you don't get that with primary epic. Because if you think about it, the Odyssey is not about that. Mm-hmm. He says he makes this really fascinating point that nothing would change if the Odyssey, nothing in Greek history feels like it's at stake with Odysseus making it home. No. There's nothing at stake. You get it kind of with the Iliad. The Iliad, yeah. More but so. really, it's more about just men and their fame. And he says this is because one of the major themes in Primary Epic will be the glory of individual men. Mm hmm the turnings of fate. Yeah. Right. And so that's just because that's the way that Homer and the Greeks saw the world. They didn't Mm -hmm. see it as good and bad as this fight between evil and good. They saw it as self-glory. And we'll talk a lot more about this when we get into the um, Odyssey. Okay. So then if we're going to keep up with C.S. Lewis and lay the bricks for people, the boards across the bridge, Mm -hmm. we've got the poet, we've got the occasion, the solemnity of it. It's calling for this grand, weighty language because the theme is grand and weighty. Mm -hmm. And then Lewis backs up and he says, but actually, you don't necessarily get the weighty grandness that we think of with the theme until you get... To Virgil. Mm-hmm. Which is a secondary epic, not yeah, a primary epic. Because secondary epic is written, but it also adds this element of the sort of weight. With Virgil, it was pietas, that is piety to the state, mm-hmm. to the fatherland. And with Milton, it would become, obviously, Christianity. Yeah, the story of the, story of the, the fall. The fall yeah. And then out of that, you would get all of epic would kind of follow the same theme. So it's actually the idea of this epic portent that we have today. Mm-hmm is because we're very Western. Yes. And he says that, and so then, if we want to be a part of the ritual, like he says, where you lose your, so Lewis is all about losing yourself, and this is where I kind of took issue with experiment and criticism, Mm -hmm. is he thinks you should just lose yourself. It it calls you to just forget yourself and just have the art. Yeah. And I'm not on board with him there. Again, he's about losing yourself in the epic, and the epic calls you to lose yourself in it. And if you're going to do that well, you have to understand the mindset that they're in. 
And this is actually where he is. This is pretty helpful yeah. because this is a way of understanding then that there's something missing, at least in the way that we understand epic from Homer. And it's this sense of duty. It's this sense of something outside of the hero calling them to be better than they are. Right. Odysseus is never called to be better than he is, right? No, the closest you probably get is the first four books with Telemachus becoming a man. You have a yeah. little bit of that dignity of him taking on But that's on just because manhood. he's being called to be like his father. Exactly. And then to forget everything else. Right. Right. There's no sense of fatherland, mm-hmm. right? There's only a sense of having been wronged, taking vengeance and particularly the glory of the hero. Right. And it's somewhat similar with the other great English primary epic, which is Beowulf, and that it's basically yeah. the story of one guy's glory and yeah. then downfall. Whereas if you compare it to a secondary epic like the Aeneid, it's the story of the founding of Rome. Paradise Lost, as we said, is the story of the fall of humanity. Yeah, in Homer, its greatness lies in the human and personal tragedy built up against the background of meaningless flux. Mm -hmm. It is all the more tragic because there hangs over the heroic world a sense of futility. This is not like Virgil's world where the suffering has meaning and is the price of a high resolve. Here there is just suffering. That's fascinating, yeah. And so I I think that's a really helpful way of understanding. And so he ends there. And I think that to Lewis's credit, and where I think that a lot of people like with where Mm -hmm. they go wrong, is they like idolize Homer without realizing that there's something missing. There's a hollowness at the core here. Yeah. Right? As beautiful as his poetry is, as great as the imagery is, as involving as the story is, because Lewis is onto something in the sense that it makes you forget yourself. Mm-hmm. I read very few things that just draw me in like the Odyssey. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Every time I read it, it just kind of, it sucks it's, me in. It's hypnotic. Like, this, is, this is amazing. Yeah. I always forget how amazing it is. And then, and a lot of people just really love, even people who don't think they love books, they'll read the Odyssey and be just swept away by it. I've had that reaction over and over again with students. Mm-hmm. They're just amazed at how good it is. So I think that he's onto something with the the at least losing yourself in it, mm-hmm. and the fact that this poetry does that. It doesn't call attention to itself. I'm with him there. The whole ritual stuff. I'm bothered by the Solemne stuff. I think kind of stinks of stuff that happens and till we have faces. Yeah, an experiment in criticism. It's a great little book, but he takes that whole concept so far that he actually ends up in a weird way denying people the faculty of discernment like you can't actually if you follow c.s lewis's logic to its conclusion you can't you can't actually judge a work because you've just got to give yourself to it enter into it and And he would say that i guess the value of a work is this you can assess the value by how much it makes you lose yourself in it yeah but even there he's a little bit he's just weird about it he's kind of mystical and there's there's some weird places in experiment and criticism where he makes it almost sound like everything's subjective and you can't really assign any value because any work even the trashiest work is one that someone could enter into and give themselves it might not be you but every work you know can this is actually where i think that guys like t.s Eliot and e.b white are healthier than c.s lewis Mm -hmm. because they didn't lose themselves in this weird theosophy yes theosophy anthroposophy all that weirdness that we talked about with c.s lewis that he was drawn into with owen barfield this sort of mystical Gnosticism, yeah. almost. T.S. Eliot and for his, I mean, T.S. Eliot is a lot, well, I guess maybe one day we'll do T.S. Eliot. We have to one way or another. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure how we'll approach it. but I love T.S. Eliot later in his life. Mm-hmm. I think that he ended up in better places than C.S. Lewis did in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a crank. He was a curmudgeon, sure. But he was also really just cheerful. In many ways, he was cheerful. And yeah. we misunderstand. I think we, well, whatever. This isn't. Right. All that to say that 
T.S. Eliot's insistence on you can also understand the craft and look at the poem as a poem and also appreciate the poet and all that. There's some healthiness to that because it forces you not to just say, but you just got to lose yourself in it. Yeah, right? yeah. Great art just makes you lose yourself. And I see a lot of this with some cheap homeschool blogs mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just sweeps you away. And that's just, what the point of great literature is. It's just to sweep you into another life and other people's mindsets and stuff like that. Yeah, that that is. I don't know. It's, but there's also craft to it. Yeah. And you can't lose that fact. So I don't know. There's just. And you have to you have to have your feet planted on the ground. It's not just like a Saturday morning cartoon about the joys of reading where you're just suddenly yeah. magically in a new world. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the sense that that leads to its own sense of pride. Mm-hmm. because if you are the type, because what it ends up being. So I had this friend growing up and she would always make me feel guilty because I couldn't imagine things as clearly as she could. Mm-hmm. She would always say things like, it was weird. She would be like, I can see this world that we're imagining right now. Can't you? And I'd be like, uh, I mean, I can pretend, <laughs> but she'd be like, no, but I can see it. Right. I can actually lose myself. So it was basically like her saying, my imagination is so amazing. You know, Brandon, it's like a notch above yours. It's funny that you say that because I remember having a, a homeschooling friend. I would have been a homeschooler at the time, too. But someone in our co-op, exact same thing. They said, yeah. I can just see it. It's like it's there. And I was yeah. so jealous. I was like, oh, man, I wish I wish I could have a cool imagination like but you, know what? you do. C.S. Lewis is doing the exact same thing here. He's saying that he can lose himself so much in a work of art that he forgets himself. And he's like, oh, wait, you don't have that experience? Well, I'm sorry, buddy. (laughs) I guess you're not C.S. Lewis. (laughs) And so there's a danger there because it becomes its own form of pride, right? It becomes its own form of, well, I guess I just have the literary instinct that much better than you do. Yeah. Take a step back. Mm -hmm. I do think people do. Some people do have that instinct more than others do. That's why you learn from other people, right? That's why certain people's opinions weigh heavier than others, and they should. Yeah. But I call malarkey. You call malarkey, yes. What? You grab that horse by the tail until it rots. Until it rots. And then I hit the person mm-hmm. who's full of malarkey mm-hmm. with the dead horse. Yes. And I tell them, imagine the stench away. Mm-hmm. Pretend it's roses. Yeah. Imagination king. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how good your imagination <laughs> is. But I'm sure we'll deal with this a lot more in the context for uh, <laughs> for the Odyssey. Yeah, the this Odyssey. Coming up next week. This is just a, a, a taste, folks. Uh, is there anything else we should say about C.S. Lewis's preface? It's well, there great... is one last... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. There's um, one thing that I actually find really helpful. Mm-hmm. Other thing. I mean, all that criticism aside, I do think this is a really helpful book. I yeah. think it's great. It's great. I just think that one particular point just troubles me. Mm-hmm. It troubles me. It troubles me. Yeah. Especially given um, C.S. Lewis's history yeah. and all the other weird, mystical things he wrote. He makes this point that um, there's an artificiality to Homer that actually makes it more natural. And hmm. so, oh, one thing, the repetitions, Yeah, like he says, the wine dark sea, all these things are repeated. And one assumption people have is the fact that it's repeated for to help the poet remember yeah, if he's reciting it orally he needs to be able to go back to the wine dark sea yeah and so he can actually be creating crafting it. the next line as he's speaking this line mm-hmm. but there's also a sense that repetition helps us to lose ourselves in it so it actually adds to that ritual yes and there i think there is truth to that i mean if you've ever one night it was a weird experience one night driving home really late back when i was doing oil and gas in illinois 
I came upon the Catholic channel mm-hmm. and heard them doing their Hail Marys. Mm-hmm. And they would do it like 50 times. Yeah. And then they would do some other part of the liturgy and mm-hmm. then they would do it 50 times again. Right. And it was weird. It was a very strange experience. Yeah, it's eerie. Yeah, it's spooky. Yeah. Made me want to like cross myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason when people, uh, what do you call it? When they meditate, many forms of meditation, you can simply choose any word. It can be horse. And you just say horse, horse, horse. You just say it over and over and over and over and over again. And you get yourself in a trance. And it is something that you can do. But he deals a lot with this. If you want to read more about it, you can go in here. Yeah. He deals with stock expressions and whether or not that's manipulating. He has all arguments about why it's not. It is manipulation, but manipulation's not so bad. Mm-hmm. Rhetoric. Yeah, sure, rhetoric persuades. But we, rhetoric only has a bad rap because it's misused so much. Mm-hmm. But rhetoric used correctly is, is fine. Right. And that all poetry engages with an audience. And so he's just continually fighting Lewis or Eliot on this point that poetry is not for the reader, mm-hmm. which I appreciate that. And these fact that you use stock expressions because there's such a thing as a stereotype. There's right. such a thing as a stock feeling that is easily, it's not cliche if it's done correctly, mm-hmm. right? And it's not cliche if the poet is so gifted that they can evoke that feeling without right. becoming cliche because the feeling of love is universal. Right. The feeling of fear is universal. The feeling of the fall and of rebellion is so universal that a poet who's really talented can evoke it. And sure, it's a stock feeling, but mm-hmm. it's still, you know, a universal feeling. Yeah. And so he deals with a lot of this stuff. It's really good. I recommend anyone who's interested in that sort of literary criticism, read it. Even if you've not read Paradise Lost, which of course you should do that, but this book has a number of chapters just, just on epic and poetry in general. If, you're, if you've read Beowulf, if you want to know more about Virgil or Homer or Beowulf and how to approach them, I think this is a great starting point for that. Yeah, and anyone who's interested in writing poetry, he has this section that I really appreciated, um, so it rang true with me, because he has this point where he says that often bad modern poets mm-hmm. who are lazy, and I think we address this with style some, yeah. will try to write forms that aren't set forms. Yes. So they'll just try free verse. Mm-hmm. I was actually having this discussion with Ben Solcer recently. That's why I'm remembering this. But he says the forms are there because they give structure and that a great poet uses the forms to actually write better poetry yes. because it requires you to be um, restricted, which makes you find things in yourself, he says, that you didn't even realize were there. Right. And um, yeah, it forces you to try and work with the form to make the form um, have life. And, and very practically, it narrows your focus. When you can do anything, that's almost like you can do nothing because it's like you have an infinite variety of possibilities before you. How do you choose them? But when you're stuck inside a set form and there's certain things that you can and can't do, it actually fires your imagination, I think, because suddenly you have to work within this discipline and there's only certain ways that you can do it. And how do you make that fresh? Yeah. And I've, and I found that true to be true. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. When you're trying to write. So he said that, man, I wish I could find this. It's a really great section. Yeah, there it is. Every poem can be considered in two ways, as what the poet has to say and as a thing which he makes. From the one point of view, it is an expression of opinions and emotions, which would be what people like who love Walt Whitman would say. It's sure. his expression of his emotion. Yeah. From the other, it is an organization of words which exists to produce a particular kind of pattern experience to the reader. And so this is what he means with stock expressions later on, is it patterns your feelings and therefore brings order to your disorderly feelings. Mm-hmm. It actually teaches you. Another way of stating this duality would be to say that every poem has two parents, its mother being the massive experience, thought, and the like, inside the poet, and its father the pre-existing form, which he meets in the public world. 
By studying only the mother, criticism becomes one-sided. It is easy to forget that the man who writes a good love sonnet needs not only to be enamored of a woman, but also to be enamored of a sonnet. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's beautiful. That. Yeah. Chesterton himself would be proud of that. Yeah. And so he makes that, yeah, that's a great point Point that he makes over and over again, that um, he makes the point later on that we have forgotten, poetry actually used to teach people how to feel. That used to be the point of poetry. Right. And so the order of a sonnet brings order to the feeling of love, mm-hmm. which then teaches you how to bring order to your own emotions. It's this sort of principle that you can order and organize your own feelings. And today we all pride ourselves on our feelings, like being, we all get really concerned when someone's feelings are pent up, right? right. Or if he seems too orderly in his emotions. We want you to just be free and chaotic. Mm-hmm. And we're all very squeamish about art doing anything didactic. Yeah. But I think you'll find with all the great masters and thinkers and philosophers of the past, they just assumed that art was didactic. Yeah, I have no patience for that. Yeah. Art is didactic. Of course it is. Not in a corny, bad way. It doesn't mean that every moralistic, stupid story is good. It just means that art is inescapably didactic. Yeah, I mean, I either have to think that or I give up art because the older I get, why would I have time for it if it's not doing something for me? Yeah. Right? So, of course. it's just going to feed my laziness and my just sense of ego and narcissism why wouldn't I have time for that? I hope not. In the words of the great YouTube video, ain't nobody got time for that, yeah. Brennan. Cash me outside, bro. just scratching the surface today right brandon that's right we're uh we're gonna talk a lot more about this stuff buckle your seat belts we'll also be talking about all kinds of things about the odyssey was odyssey is a great guy i don't know we'll be uh getting there brandon's making a like a ooh face because yeah. i don't think brandon thinks he's a great guy um, but we'll find out we'll find out so um we got plenty more to come hope you enjoyed this episode just leave us a five star how many stars do you think people should give us brandon how many can they give us Five on iTunes, mm, at least four and a half. What if they are buying us a star in the star for in the sky, like in the in the star directory? I think you could do that for about fifty bucks. How many stars should they get us? Oh, they should get us at least five. Then. Yeah, I want to say a, a constellation. Yeah, man, somebody should buy us a constellation. That'd be cool. And in the shape of what? Oh man, a book. A book. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I'd love to have get like Orion or Cassiopeia or yeah. something like that if if they're open, if they're available. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, buy the Pleiades for us. Yeah, be cool. Be cool. <laughs> anyway, if somebody wants to buy us a star, we'll take it. Um, there's seven seven stars in the Pleiades. Are there seven shining stars of Warhorn? Uh, yeah, of course there are. Well, yeah. I mean, there's Nathan Alberson. That's one. Yeah, right there, Brandon Chastain. That'd be another. Jacob Menzel, not here, but he's a shining star of Warhorn. That's three right there. At least so. right there. Yeah, and then you got the three guys from My Soul Among Lions and Tim Bailey. That's, that's seven right there. And you, know, you got Ben Solzer and other things like that. But Mother load. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, there's, there's so many but women don't get stars. No, women don't get stars. <laughs> unless it's a star-shaped baking thing that you make cut like cookies a, with. Cut yeah. cookies with, yeah. That's right. Or star sprinkles that you put on cookies. cookies. <laughs> I don't know what other star things women can uh, get. That makes me want a cookie. <laughs> star sprinkles. <laughs> you know what I think? C is for cookie. Yeah. And that's good enough for me. Mm. That's good enough for me. To quote another great poet and yeah. monster, Cookie Monster. Mm. Said that. Huh. <laughs> did he? <laughs> he did. He did. Two. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. uh, would be the count. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that was what we were doing. <laughs>